Time to pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Oh, Father, uh, we thank you for this precious time in worship. Um, it, it, it's just refreshing to our souls to, to remember the advent, the coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, though your word says that his coming was from old, uh, we afresh look upon his birth and uh, just reflect with great joy that our hope, uh, being found in a manger, uh, came to earth. He lived the perfect life, died an obedient death, and uh, is risen now, and our hope is in him, and our hope eternally is in him, Lord. So we thank you uh, for this, and we, we praise you once again. Oh, Father, we're, we're also thinking this morning about your loving acts of purifying and, and refining us, Lord. Uh, this is a, a wearisome life and, and an, an upward climb that we're um, striving with your help to honor you and help us to be obedient and embrace the, the ways that you're refining us. Uh, we thank you for your wisdom and mercy in these, in these actions. Lord, we have requests as a church family. We, we think uh, even now of those among us, family members, those on the live stream who are ill and, and need your uh, healing hand. We pray that you would bring that and bring, bring them to restoration. We know that there are many who are relationally mourning uh, the loss of uh, others in their family or friends. Uh, we pray for your comfort. We pray for your healing. Uh, we thank you for the many great things happening in our church family. We, we even look back over our shoulders this week at um, the, the women's Christmas dinner where the gospel was presented. Uh, we pray that those gospel seeds would, would uh, take root in the hearts of those who didn't know you and that they would give uh, their life to you and find the hope in Jesus that we're all celebrating this morning. And Father, we ask it just in this season that you would refocus us, uh, help us to reach those uh, around us, and um, spread your gospel and good news of hope uh, in Jesus' name. Lord, we also pray uh, one final thing for the um, service today. We pray for Pastor Austin's message. We pray uh, that the words of his mouth and meditations of his heart would be pleasing to you and that, that we would have ears to hear you, Lord. Uh, we pray all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, uh, it, it's also time now to, to read our passages this morning, so would you, would you please join me in, in honoring God and his precious word by standing, please. In our first passage this morning, what are we going to read? Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Our second passage is from Matthew 3, 1 through uh, 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who who was spoken of by the prophet, prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going, going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I will baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in, the, in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay. And now the lighting of the second advent candle. Thank you, Condon family. You may be seated. I said they did that the first hour, and that was a very high standard for the Shaw boys, and now an impossibly high standard for the Shaw boys. So well, well done. You are a blessing to your church family. Nick and Allie, thank you. Lucas, Zachary, and Benjamin, too. We love you guys. So I, I think from you know, conversations, from uh, culturally, anecdotally, historically, that many people, when they use the word God, that they really uh, conceive of it as some kind of an abstraction. Uh, that it's nothing more than an idea or a framework. Uh, it's just a means by which we might you know, get a little bit of ethics or something like that. But there's no sense that God could be personal, that he's knowable, and that he could make a real difference in, in the lives of his people. And if you think Christmas, what really is happening uh, the word Advent means coming. It's the great declaration from God that he is knowable, uh, that he's a personality, that ultimately the, the world is not a, a random uh, amalgamation of, of atoms, but rather there's an intelligence behind it, and that God has made us in his image, and he wants to know us, right? That that's what we claim, that the eternal second person of the Trinity, right? God was never without his son. The father was never without his son. Otherwise, he wouldn't be eternally father. But that son came down in the person of Jesus to show people from all time that this is serious. God's not a philosophical abstraction. He's not just something out there that we use, that we can invent as we'd like him to be, you know, like him to be for our means, but rather God's broken into the world so we can say, ah, that's, that's what he's like. That's how we're to relate to him. And you think about the person of Jesus. Maybe you're not a, not a religious person, you'd say. You must marvel at the person of Jesus. That across the globe, it doesn't matter what culture, but wherever he's presented, that he takes root. That he's so relatable. You say, wow, look at this person of Jesus. I'm so drawn in. And we're able to say, yes, that's what God's like. He's come down. He's real. He's personal. We can have a relationship with him. Again, the universe, everything about us is built on a relationship with God. Now, we've been thinking about this theme, uh, Emmanuel, as we just sang, uh, God with us. How often that theme comes in Scripture. Uh, I say it every week. I'll continue to say it every week. The Bible's one story. 
You might see it and you open it up and say, wow, this is difficult to read and it's a product of the ancient Near East and, you know, what is all... Say, really, the, the Bible's a smooth arc. Say, God made everything. He's got a plan. His creatures, we've done our best to ruin it. We've turned our backs on him. We clench our fist at him. But God, in his kindness, has initiated a redemption for his people through his son, Jesus, and it comes to us as a choice. You think, I learned the story of the Bible in eight words. God's plan, man's problem, God's solution, and our response. So that's what all the Bibles are about. God made things good. He's got a plan. We said, no thanks. I want to be selfish. That we then become polluted in that rebellion. But God in his kindness it says, look, I put my son forward to show you that I'm gathering a people to myself. Will you follow him? Will you come to him? And last week, you know, we, uh, Pastor Caleb started us off wonderfully about this idea of God being with his people as early as the garden. You remember Genesis 3, opening pages of the Bible, God, we find him walking in the garden with his people that he wants to be with us, right? He's not, again, out there, but he's here. He's with us, and he changes us. Now, when you're thinking about Advent messages as a pastor, say the challenge is always you don't want to get too cute on the one hand, right? You say get, get too confusing. You know, people say it's Christmas time, stay on point. Say I get that. At the same time, I always want to try to bring a little bit different of an angle to say, oh, I've not thought about that. Or in the culture, I've lost that. And so thinking about this theme today of God with us opens a, a category. I'll use a philosophical or theological word and then a couple theological words and then explain. Very easy idea, a word we don't normally use outside of, well, in any context really, but see if it resonates with you. Sometimes people, you, well, theologians have used the word theophany. It's uh, just the word that mean, means God appears. That if you're reading all the Bibles, we've been reading in Exodus, say God appears among the people. Uh, he's not an idea, but there he is. And uh, this happens over and over and over again. Theophanies in the Bible, God appearing, he's with his people. And to go a step further, the second term is what we call a, a Christophany. Does the second person of the Trinity appear to the people of God before he's incarnated, before he's incarnate? And we would say, uh, yes. Let me give you an example of what I mean. It should be fresh on our minds. You don't have to turn there. But we just uh, have been looking at Exodus. Remember uh, Moses and the burning bush. This is Exodus 3.2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And then if you skip down just to a few verses to verse 4, that when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called the Moses out of the bush. So you think of that. Who's in the bush? It's the messenger of the Lord with the definite article. The messenger of the Lord is in the bush, but God speaks from the bush. Now, it's very hard if you're a Christian, based on the things that Jesus says, not to say this is a, some kind of visible presence of the second person of the Trinity. The, the definitive messenger of God uh, appearing in the midst of the people to give them direction. And so you see, it's one example of God appearing, appearing to the people. Now, to hone this in a bit more, God appears so much to his people, often in different forms. And today, as we will in the upcoming weeks, look at a different way that God appears. But today, I want to look at how God appears to his people in fire. 
that so often does God appear to his people in fire. If you did a, an exhaustive study of this, I was amazed this week, you know, again, reading Exodus and just how many times God appears in, in fire. You know, my, my, Mallory reads the sermons uh, every week, and, and this week she said, wow, you have a, you know, more cross-references than normal in this uh, sermon. I said, yes, that's right. I was struck by how many times God appears to the people in fire. And when he appears to the people in fire, it seems to mean uh, s slightly different things he wants to get across. So, for example, when, when he does, he wants to remind his people that he keeps his promises. So, Genesis 15, he appears to, to Abraham to make the, the first, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, and when he appears on Mount Sinai. In other words, when God appears to the people in fire, he's saying, remember who you are. I'm your God, and you're my people, and I'm going to lead you. So, that's one theme. Another theme in fire, we could say, is God's guidance. Uh, that just a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Exodus 13. Remember how God's leading them through the desert? He leads them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. So in some sense, God appears to the people in fire in order to guide them, uh, to take them to the promised land, so to speak. Then I think maybe most obviously, when we think of God and fire and we put those categories together, we, we think of his, his just judgment, uh, that God is somebody who's not to be provoked that he's not to be tampered with or taken lightly but rather he is our just judge now all these you can do it this week you know you've got the cross references in the notes say well, we've got god as covenant making god in fire we've got god uh guiding his people we've got god judging his people but actually all those um are not where i want to focus today today i want to focus on this theme of god refining his people that god as a fire points to the fact that he's going to work on us, that he's doing a work in our life. You say, how very personal is that, right? Not just Jefferson's God kind of out there setting anything in motion, but God saying, I'm calling a people to myself through Jesus, and I'm going to go to work on you, and I'm going to refine you into a people for my kingdom as we yield to him. That's the theme today. So God's, the language, uh, so bold heading number one, the language of God as a refining fire comes so many times in scripture, again, you'd all be exhausted and we'd all be very bored if I just started to list them out, but you, you know, take my word for it. The language of God as a refining fire is everywhere. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, minor prophets like Zechariah, as we'll see, it comes in the New Testament. God says, I'm like a refiner's fire. And so when I dwell in the midst of my people, I'm working on them. Now, where does this language most often come from? Now, this is where I have to be very careful because I am neither a chemist or a physicist or a metallurgist, but we can say just trying to scratch that. I know some of you are, and this is where you have to be, you know, there are experts in the room, and, you know, I missed something on this, and then the rest of the sermon, you're frustrated, so I'm trying not to do that uh, here, but you say just very casually, if you'd forgive me, um, so the idea, metallurgist, right, you extract precious metals from the ground, and when you do, in those precious metals, there are a lot of impurities. There are things that are not the metal. And in order to uh, purify the metal, to, to make it more valuable, is that you heat it up so that you extract the impurities and you come out with the product that you really want. That's the image God's saying. I'm like a refiner's fire for my people, and I'm going to work on them in such a way where all the, the junk's burned up, and I'm able to present them, right, as my people, that he's going to do that work for us. Now, as this is set up, we have to ask the difficult question. Do we really need to be refined? 
I say, I don't like that idea very much. And say, well, actually, I'm doing quite well. Aren't you doing well? I mean, a pretty good guy. I mean, I, you know, do a decent enough job. I'm honest. I'm not swindling anybody. For the most part, I use clean words, that kind of thing. Uh, do I really need to be refined by a God who presents himself as fire? And I hope that if we just, again, against the culture for a moment, say, well, how does the Bible present sin? And as I think of my own life, what has sin done in me and to others? You say, sin really is the act of re rebellion against God, that all of us carry guilt. Say, so we just pause a minute and put our smartphones down, put our heads on the pillow at night, do a catalog of our own history, things I've said to friends, things I've done, things I've watched, places I've went, you say, well, maybe there is a guilt there, that there's a cumulative weight, right, on all, what, seven and a half billion of us, that all of us have no thanks to God, I'm doing my own thing, and we have that weight on us, and it begins to really weigh us down and to hurt other people, because you see, sin, the way it works is it's a, it's a contagion, that we've got a better idea of how that works right now in the world in which we are. I think it's a very good analogy for sin, right? It kind of feeds on itself, it, it permeates. And I think here, this is such an important point for those of us who are, are Christians. When I talk to my non-Christian friends and they think about sin, they think what Christians mean is that we go around telling other people about their, their mistakes. Oh. Look at what he did. That's a sin. And look at what he did. Oh, there's another sin. Ah, 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 that's out of bounds. Look at all these infractions. And we Christians are smug, pointing out all the bad things the other people have done. You say, that is not the doctrine of sin. Say, the doctrine of sin is that by means of the first human rebellion, that there's been an overwhelming force to come on all of creation, right? That, that sin, if you notice often in Scripture, it's, it's in the singular, and it, it takes verbs, so it's not, oh, look at all those sins. What it is is sin has entered, sin, sin controls, sin overwhelms the heart of the person. You see, sin is this force that comes in, and we align it with things like selfishness and pride. And you say, you put it that way, say, yeah, each one of us say, I'd rather do my own thing than be accountable to God, that I'd rather look out for myself, and quite frankly, any of you or you know, uh, people very close to me, that I, I want to do my own thing, and as I do that, I begin to hurt other people. I'm weighed down with guilt. And if I pause there a moment, I say, do I have any solution for this predicament that I'm in? Now, also on this theme, wonderfully, the idea of God refining his people, I think it tells us something else, and that is that we're works in progress. See, as important as it is, we talk a lot about this, you must be born again, you must be converted uh, to come to faith in Christ, that is a, a surrendering to him. But once we do that, that we know that we're works in progress, that God is going to work on us to mold us into uh, those who are more and more like Jesus. You know, some people think of faith as a stale commitment of the past. Oh, I, I've done that. I did that as a child, in fact. I'm good to go. And we have no concept of this idea of God going to work on us. He's taking out the impurities, that I'm growing in my faith, that I'm a different kind of a Christian than I was even a year ago, that that's the message of God as a refining fire. So God is a refining fire, taking the metaphor from 
the practice of eliminating impurities from metals, that we as God's people need this to be done because we're under the weight of sin in a sinful world, as Nick and Allie even prayed, to look out at the world to say, yes, there's a force that is at work that is very dark indeed, and I've participated that, in that uh, to certain degrees in my life, and I need God to work on me to change me from the inside out. Now, with this idea of God as a refining fire, I think three elements, as I thought about this this week, presented in these places in the Bible, three aspects to God refining his people. See what you think. You can talk about it this week as you talk about the passage. So firstly, there's an element of testing. That God tests the genuineness of the faith uh, of his people. So, for example, if you look at the proverb, just take one example, we'll say things, a word of God, we'll say things like this. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. You can see how that's pushed together? It's like, okay, God's got the, the practice of the, the purifying of metals pushed together against testing the hearts of the people, testing the genuineness of our faith. Now, another this would clash. You'll see now where we're going here, how many of the authors of the Bible talk about the trials in their lives as passing by fire. So one Christian leader would tell me either you're in the fire, uh, you're about to go into the fire, or you're in the fire. One of the three is always true. You say the trials of life are often depicted as passing through fiery trials. Now, if you're a Christian and you read something like this, you're saying the challenges in my life, and as I have surrendered to Christ and I'm walking with God, that all the difficult things in my life as God and his sovereignty is over them and watching his people, that all those trials in my life are testing the genuineness of my faith so that as I trust him and as I emerge, that my faith will be stronger and the saints will be built up. You know, some of you you know, I, t I teach undergraduate church history, actually a real passion of mine, and you know, every term it's very fashionable now to say, we don't need any examinations, you know. Dr. Shaw, we haven't had any examinations this term. I said, yes, you're going to have, I'm, I, I very much like examinations, actually, and I think you will too, is what I tell them, because that's how you're going to know if you've made any progress. Say, so after you pass those exams, you're going to know you know a little bit more about church history, and you're going to be more equipped uh, in your lives and serving the church, having uh, gone through this class. In a simple way, I think that's exactly what's going on here. So here we are uh, as uh, the faithful, and a trial comes our way. God in his sovereignty, has he put that there to test us in the way that he's purifying us? You know, I think it's so true. Calvin, I was reading him this week in what he calls the little book of the Christian life. He says, without the trials in life that God's grace can remain idle. It's only in that, that fiery furnace where you say, oh, I feel the infusion of God's grace. It's in the moments where I have no control over this. Say, whether it's a health issue, issue with a loved one, circumstances beyond your control. Say, it is in those moments where I have to lean on my faith, where God proves sufficient that the examination comes that I am strengthened by him. And I hope that's been your story too that we need these tests to refine us. We need these tests to help our faith grow. Now, I think there's an objection here from the culture. It goes something like this. If God authors the terrible things in my life, I don't want to have anything to do with them. 
What kind of God is this who's up there, you know, throwing me these kinds of trials and examinations that are ruining my life? If that's the way God is, um, no thanks. And one way to think about that uh, objection to God testing us is to think of it this way, to say whether you're a Christian or not, the terrible things in this world come. Uh, so the worst possible thing any of us could imagine, say whether you're a Christian or not, that could happen. If you're not a Christian, what can you say about that? You say, if you're intellectually honest, something like this. Bad luck. I, I, I just had bad luck. How about for hope? Not much hope. All there is is stuff. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to either despair, as many are in our culture, or toughen up, try a bit harder, keep going. I don't know. Say it's actually quite bleak. But if you're a Christian and the worst possible thing comes, you say, well, actually, I know that this world is under a curse because of human rebellion, that I know that God is sovereign and that I'm his child. I know that for the short time that I have, 70 or 80 years, maybe a bit longer, the short time that I have, that God uh, is going to use my life to build his kingdom, that I am his child, but that I can rest under him. Do you see the difference that that would make to say, is this a test for the genuineness of my faith for the short time that I have, knowing that I have the hope of Christ, knowing that I'm going to be with him and all those who know him in the end? Or the bad things in life, just that, just bad luck. So God to the faithful, to you. I know some of you are in deep trials this week. You're in very deep trials. As you trust Christ to say, you know what, he's refining my faith. That as I trust him and emerge, even from this very dark valley, that I can delight in him and that my faith is enough. So that's God as the refining fire. Secondly, beyond testing, there's a notion of separation. Separation in the purity of metals. What do I mean? Well, as I described before, that you've got all those impurities in there. And what happens in a refiner's fire is you're going to push out over here all the stuff that's good and worthwhile and push out over here all the, all the junk. There's a separation in the life of the believer. I, I, would, I would put it this way, that there's a realization among the people of God as to what really matters. You know, I think back to my own, you know, undergraduate days and how, many, how, much, how much risk I played. You ever played that game, Risk? It's like hours and hours and hours. I wasted so much time. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, just so much wasted time. And you say that on a, on a kind of grand scale, right? It's what happens as a Christian matures. You say, Lord, I'm, I'm focused here on all the wrong stuff. I've been trying to make a name for myself. In my folly, I've been trying to accumulate more stuff. I'm like that guy in Luke's gospel that says, hey, let me build more barns for all my stuff. And guys, today, buddy, today's your day. But the way God comes in, right? He says, no, this is the stuff that matters. You say, don't want to you know, store up your treasure, treasures where moths and rust destroy. You say, look at all my stuff, God. But rather to say, I want to invest in what matters for him. You know, and I think there's a real touch point here. You say, how do you talk to your non-Christian friends? I, I see a real touch point here in something like business ethics. It's amazing how much Stanford University, in particular, the last, say, 15 years, Stanford University put a lot of money into morality in the workplace. So you're trying to think about these things. I went to a lecture in graduate school by a guy named T.R. Malik, actually Theodore Roosevelt Malik, so... Mallory vetoed that one for the boys. But T.R. Malik, you know, he's a big, you know, kind of business 
leader, and he was talking about this idea of doing virtuous business. Again, just as a touch point, I'll never forget, he drew a little graph. I weaseled my way in as a clergyman, you know, I'm with all the future businessmen. Uh, and, and so they, they've got the graph like this, you know, the X, the X and the Y plane, and he draws an, an inverted U curve, like a parabola on that, this, and he's, very simply, the X, the X axis was what he called acts of service, and the Y axis is what he called acts of power or ambition. And he's got all these young businessmen at Oxford. He says, you all starting out, he said, I bet you've got a lot of stuff you want to do in terms of ambition and power. And he says, you want to go out, you're going to you know, get all your stuff, and you're, you're climbing up this side. You say, your acts of power are going off exponentially. But then at the top of that inverted U-curve, he, he drew a point. He said, but if you're not careful, he said, you're going to skyrocket up and, and realize you're kind of out there alone, and uh, it's not a very pleasant place to be. He said, what you need, and the earlier in life you discover it, the better, is what he called, interestingly, a redemptive curve. And the redemptive curve is a realization that your life is no longer about your own ambitions, but actually about what you do for others. So you come back, you start to grow in the acts of service. I thought, this is very interesting to a bunch of young businessmen. It's a little bit like, the, well, a lot like the Christian life. Like, here I am as a natural man. Well, what do I do? You know, here I have a blank slate. Well, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to do the things that are pleasurable until God breaks in and says, that's not the stuff you want to be doing. You're building with a bunch of straw. You say, invest in what really matters the kingdom of heaven and the Lord Jesus. And I hope that as God's people, right, to bring it back, how very, there's an increasing realization in the life of the church of what really matters. Not all this other fluff that's temporary, but in God and his work. So that's God as a refining fire. Thirdly, wonderfully, very good, uh, cleansing. So again, God is a refiner's fire. He's testing his people by trial. Uh, He's separating in our own hearts and minds, um, what we ought to really be investing in and what really matters, namely relationships with other people for the sake of the gospel. And thirdly, and, and I think gloriously, is a cleansing. That the refiner's fire removes impurity. So listen to the way that, again, so many times in Scripture, this is Isaiah 4, 4, the Lord will have uh, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and cleanse the bloodstain of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of fire. That God washes his people. Now, I don't know about you, but I talk to a lot of people, certainly felt it in my own life, where there are elements of my own sin where if you scramble for a word to describe how you feel, that uh, oftentimes we'll use a word like, I feel dirty. I find this often the way that we particularly have maybe used our bodies, um, sexual immorality, things we've put into our bodies that we're not God-honoring, or maybe even things that we've looked at. And we've gone down that road, and we wake up one day and say, I, I just feel very polluted. I feel very dirty. I don't know what to do about it. It's as if there's a whole bunch of impurity in me because of the way that I've lived my life. You say, well, there's very good news for you. The very good news is God says, I'm like a refiner's fire. And as you surrender to me and allow me to go to work on you, that I'll cleanse you in the purity of my son, Jesus, that there's a way to have a fresh start. Say, maybe you're there today. 
done some things and you say, I, I need a fresh start. I need, certainly don't need any other person that I know of, right? We're all in the same predicament, but if only there was somebody who could cover me and cleanse me and refine me, is that promise available? And is it, is it real? Is it not just out there? Say, yes, it is there in the person of the Lord Jesus, right? That he cleanses as a refiner's fire. So friends, as God appears to his people, he's testing us in trial. He's separating in our minds and our hearts the things that we ought to be pursuing and that he's cleansing us and renewing us as we confess our sins and as we walk with him, that we have a fresh start in him. Now, okay, now we get to bold heading number two and actually our passages. Uh, here's, here's the next question, I think. Why doesn't God appear in fires anymore to his people? So that would be pretty spectacular, right? You'd all be convinced if there was a big ball of fire right here. Just say, look at that. Who can deny that? Or better yet, I think, you know, we, uh, as we pull out onto Detroit Road, there's a great pillar of fire out there, you know, directing traffic. We don't need the officers to say, now that's what I'm talking about, God in the fire. Uh, where is he? Why doesn't this happen anymore? What if I said that I think is God is more visible and more present in this way than ever before. That God is present as a fire in each life of the believer when we surrender to Jesus. So again, I know I wish I had more time, but think of our passages. So Malachi chapter 3, very important for Christmas time. Through the prophet Malachi, God says, I'm going to send a messenger, and the messenger is going to preach. And that messenger is going to preach about the real messenger of the covenant, a second messenger. And that second messenger, notice, is going to appear like a refiner's fire, like soap. He's going to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, right? Levi, uh, the, the, even the holy guys among even the pastors. And he's going to refine them like gold or silver. So get that right. 400 years before Jesus, through the prophet Malachi, God says, I'm going to send a preacher. And that preacher is going to talk about the messenger of my covenant who's going to be like a refiner for the people, testing them. And lo and behold, in our first gospel, right, Matthew chapter 3, you say what's happening and what was, again, wonderfully read by the Condens. Here's John the Baptist. He's that preacher pointing his way to Jesus. And look at what he says, Matthew 3 and verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Say an amazing uh, preaching moment there. John uh, fulfills the whole theme, and he says, actually, you know, God, as he's appeared uh, as a fire to his people to refine them, actually, the guy who's going to do that is the Lord Jesus. And John's saying what we all know to be true, say, I can only baptize on the outside. I can only dip people in water. But Jesus comes into your life and changes you from the inside out. And then what happens again, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2 and verse 3, and how is the Holy Spirit, of all the things that God could have described his spirit coming on the people, you know what he's described as, right? As the fire coming down into the life of the believer. They say, what's happening here, God has always appeared to his people as fire to remind them of a bunch of different things. Today we're saying he's refining them. 
Jesus is the real refiner, and his spirit indwells the believer. And what does that mean? Well, that when we, those who have put our faith in Christ, that when we go through struggles and trials, that we know that he is testing us and refining our faith, that we know that he's reminding us and convicting us of what the things in life really matter, and he's cleansing us from our sin and rebellion and polluted ways. Friends, maybe you're not a Christian today. And there are always non-Christians here every Sunday. We're very glad you're here. Maybe you look out at the world. You do look out at the world as we do. You see the events in Michigan this week, very, very disappointing, and Omicron variants, and it's just so overwhelming. You say, maybe today you say, I've, I've, I, I've lost my way. I have no answers. So I challenge you today to encounter this person of Jesus. There's nobody like him. He says he's a refiner's fire. He's going to come into your life as you surrender to him. Say, God, I have. I've been, actually, if I'm honest, I've been part of the problem. I've done selfish things. I've hurt other people. I have the weight of guilt. God, I need the purity of Jesus to come into my life. I surrender to you today. Say, if that's you today, you've never surrendered to Jesus. The culture, today I tell you that he's the way, the truth, and the life that he's your hope. He stands at the door and knock. Will you yield your life to him? Let him come into your life as a refiner's fire, directing you, guiding you, giving you hope. No better time to do that than Advent. Friend, if you are a Christian today, we don't think of God as a fire as much, and maybe for some of us, we know that we have the Spirit of God in us, but he's been so... uh, so dampened down by our ways and not thinking of him, not walking with him. I pray for each member of our church that we would be reminded today, say, yes, the refiner's fire lives within me, that I've been promised to have the spirit of God, that I can walk with him, that no matter what I face, that he's going to go to work on me, that I, I think of him. And each day he makes a real difference in my life. God's not an abstraction. He's guiding us in trial. He's testing all of our thoughts. He's reminding us who we are in his, as him as sons and daughters, cleansing us. Say, what a hope that we have. God longs to be with his people. Emmanuel, he is with his people. And we have that hope that all the promises that come is God refining us, going to work on us, molding Providence Church into the church that he wants us to be as we trust him. So I'll invite Jim back up. We can pray about this and, of course, think about it this week. Lord, we um, fall into that trap, I think, of having you as just an idea. And today and always, but really at Advent, to say, no, you're, you're a personal God, that we can have a relationship with you. And to think as we learn, as you manifest yourself in fire to your people, what the implications of that are, say, well, every day we, every day we have trials. Every day we have a thought life. Every day we probably think about our own past and things we could have done better, and to think you're ever present with us in the form of your spirit as we surrender to you. Lord, your church, for all the, all the things happening these days in the American church, Lord, help us to just be so, so modest before you that we're, we're sinful people. But Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, make us different, that we'd be loving in a way that the world doesn't love, that we'd be convicted in a way that the world's not convicted, that when people are around us at work or come to our church who don't know you, 
that there'd be something supernatural here again by your work through us. So Lord, I pray you'd mold us into this, the church that you want us to be. Do your refiner's work on us, no matter how painful it might be. We thank you for the promises that we have in this truth. May Christ be honored in our midst. In his name we pray, amen.